Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with your hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Phil and Ted's guest today is comedian, actress, author, and famous charismatizer, Melanie Chertoff. And now, your Sexy Boomer hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, Bunker to Bunker Edition. Hi, Phil. Hi, Ted. I'm actually not high right now. I'm low in my bunker uh-huh. uh, under the earth. Under the, I've got the big lead uh, trap door thing closed. Oh. Okay, and I'm and I have lots of canned food. Uh, unfortunately, I left the can opener upstairs, so I'm going to have to use my teeth. Hmm. But you know, I'm a survivalist, so I'll, I'll get through this. When was the last time you showered? I don't have to. It's just me down here. Yeah, and it will stay that way. It's a sure way to keep keep other people away from you, by the way, if you have to go out in that social, uh, unsocial distancing thing. Today, we're very happy to say that we have none other than Melanie Chardoff joining us. And I'll be doing Edith Bunker. <laughs> That's right. She's She embodies many, many, many people. Uh, in her in her voice career and actually in her acting career as well. Well, I've known of, of you for a long time. I, I think you first came to attention to me during uh, the Fridays series in 1980 when ABC mm-hmm. went up against Saturday Night Live with uh, a like-minded format, but it really was different, wasn't it? Well, it was intended to be a clone. That was ABC's idea. And we defied that because we were all iconoclasts and wanted to create our own things. So within the limitations of that format, we innovated as much as we possibly could with our own characters and our own little absurdist plays and bits. You did. You had a really interesting cast, too. I mean, that's when you worked with Michael Richards. And- yes. And Larry David was on the show. And Everybody was so talented. It was so much fun. I had known Larry David and Bruce Mahler from the stand-up days uh, at the New York Improv Club. And so they already felt like, like my cousins. So when they were cast on the show, it was my first big thing in Los Angeles. It was very comforting, you know, to have them there. I was given the newscast, which was kind of an isolating position at the time, because at the beginning, I didn't get to interact with all the wonderful other characters. But in time, I was able to evolve some characters of my own and got to work with everybody pretty spontaneously. It was it was really a fun experience, a wild experience, as you may have noticed, but fun. You may have come in late, but you really were a standout. Thank you. You went from stand-up to stand-out, and you were you were iconicast. <laughs> you know. Thank you, Philip. Oh, I love you. Larry David was a writer on Saturday Night Live about that time, wasn't he? Or was it after? No, that was after. A number of us were invited to be on Saturday Night Live after the demise of Fridays. Uh, I was invited over, and so was Larry um, to be on the writing staff. And I think um, he endeavored in the trenches for the first year, didn't get anything on, and quit and walked off the show. And then decided he had done a stupid thing. So the next morning, he came back as though he hadn't quit. which storyline was uh, recrafted on the Seinfeld show when George quits his job and walks out in a big huff and then just shows up the next day uh, hoping he hasn't blown it and nobody says anything. He just comes back. Larry started to distinguish himself, I think, the second year when he was a writer at Saturday Night Live and the rest is history. I don't think he really, um, you know, developed this wonderful misanthropic persona until a little bit after that. And then Wearing that new persona, he sort of came out gangbusters. Mm-hmm. And it's a character he continues to hone and develop, which really isn't him. He's a really sweet man. 
kind to his friends, playful. Um, but that persona, he's gotten a great deal of mileage out of that. We just, he's the, the, the schnook everybody loves to love. There's a funny parallel with uh, your show of shows starring Sid Caesar in that the uh, the typist in the writer's room with Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner and Sid and various other people was Woody Allen. Right. Okay. And and he he finally, when he finally came out and started doing his own stand-up, he developed a nerdy character yes. that served him well, you know? <laughs> In uh, Mike Nichols' biography written by 150 of his best friends, ah. where Jack Rollins talks about Mike, but he also talks about Woody Allen hiring him sort of to be a writer for your show shows and other shows. And then he would have Woody come into his office and just read jokes that he was writing for other stand-ups. And finally, Jack Rollins said to him, it's hilarious when you just read your own jokes. Why don't you try doing stand-up? And Woody said, who, me? No, I don't, I wouldn't know how to do that. And then in a matter of months, he developed his own persona, which wow. is another chapter in history. But he initially did not start out to be a personality or an actor. He was just kind of a geeky guy who loved to write jokes for others. That's a, a wonderful story. I want to ask you something. We have one thing in common, which is that I went to Yale in New Haven. You were born in New Haven. Right? I was a townie, Philip. I was in all the Yale dramatic plays when I was in high school. Oh, wow. How did you get from New Haven to show business? Well, I got a drama scholarship to Adelphi, and it was on Long Island, and that was close enough for my parents from Connecticut to come and visit and see me in the shows. And um, from there, I got a BA. But during the summers, because of the proximity of Adelphi University in Garden City, Long Island to New York City, I could take the train in and audition. So I was in Summerstock every summer from you know, the beginning freshman year of college right through the end. So I already had my equity card and my um, mm -hmm. after a card by the time I came to New York. I was also on soap operas while I was still in college. I played the waitress on All My Children and, oh, I played a nurse on One Life to Live. I was on Search for Tomorrow. So I was learning a lot while I was still in college. And I remember the first time we met, uh, you and I, uh, tell me if you remember this, you and I were being interviewed on the radio uh, maybe at KPFK, I can't quite remember, but you for Fridays and me for Firesign Theater. Oh, okay. like in the, the 80s, the early yeah, 80s. The only thing I regret was I was too shy to ask you out to dinner. Oh, God, I wish you had. I was starving. I was starving all <laughs> this year. We worked 13-hour days, 14-hour days, six days a week. And the seventh we wrote uh, on that wow. show, we would just never had any time to socialize or do anything. I think anybody on Saturday Night Live felt similarly that they were on this isolated island only hanging with each other. Uh, yeah. Eating when allowed, peeing, peeing when allowed, and we just didn't get out much. So I, I'm sorry. It's not too late, you know. <laughs> well, uh, is Stan okay with that? Your husband? If Melinda's okay with it. We can go. We we did meet for dinner last year, the four of us. So we have been at dinner. Yeah, we did. Not the same. How are you holding up? Well, not that much has changed for me because I've been teaching from home and writing from home. Uh, and I've been doing little podcasts and I've been doing some little films, uh, recording for various venues. 
So not that much has changed. And uh, my, my, my husband and I are able to take walks to visit some elderly neighbors in the neighborhood. And we have a 10 feet apart visit and we bring them things. Huh. And uh, so it does feel like we have some social life. You know, I take walks on the phone with my girlfriends and we're able to have some very intimate conversations while walking our neighborhoods. And then we FaceTime and show each other pretty flowers or pretty dogs. And mm. nothing is going to return to the normal institutions we had in the past. I think it's going to be a complete wipeout. I think you said the other day, Ted, that it was like a much needed reset that the earth is demanding. One can hope. Well, I would say that what you're hoping for is that this becomes the pause that refreshes. Yeah. And I've always thought about this reboot as like a kick in the ass to everybody to, you know, shock them into the sensibility of uh, of the fact that, the you know, we are uh, caretakers of the earth. And it's really amazing to me that at this time, which should be a time of great enlightenment, the so many unenlightened people are stepping forward and resisting this. It's really a strange and interesting time. Mm, and when you talk about we, we have to make an adjustment. We, I mean, I think you're talking first world. I don't know about the other we, you know, the, the second and third world folks. My big, my heart is with the folks whose businesses and families are not going to be able to make it uh, through this. And I don't want to go into a dark alley. We should lift out of this because this is the sexy boomer show. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, we don't want to put a turd in the uh, punch bowl, as they say. Unless we can recycle it, yes. <laughs> we are speaking with Melanie Chartoff on Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, Bunker to Bunker Edition. Getting back to your career a little bit, everybody always wants to know, how did you break through? How did you make it? Auditions. And I auditioned for um, various Broadway shows. I would go to the open calls. So it was just try and fail, you know, for many, many years. But I did manage to get into summer stock and I did manage to do every musical known to mankind, every ingenue and every show. <laughs> and I auditioned for a Broadway show called Via Galactica, which starred Raul Julia. It was a space age rock musical, um, music by Galt McDermott, who wrote Hair, the music for Hair. I got the part and it was a wild kind of thing where uh, we were on another planet. We were escapees to another planet and there were craters set in the stage uh, with trampolines and we would leap weightlessly from one crater to another in slow-mo. <laughs> and I mean, it was just so full of Dadaisms and contraptions and special effects. And uh, it closed in about two weeks with a lot of injuries and... <laughs> Yeah, it was like the early Spider-Man saga. I don't know if you recall Spider-Man a number of years oh, ago. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There were injuries galore, and I felt, oh, my God, it's Broadway. It's theater. It's going to be wonderful. And it was so inhumane because the uh, show and the concept were more important than the players. It was very clear that the producers were very mercenary. At a certain point, we made the producers get on the equipment every night before we went on to make sure everything was holding um, because oh. we were scared. We had hazard pay, but it wasn't going to be enough to deal with the pre-TSD. We were all having pre-TSD. <laughs> and then one night, one of the, uh, in the flying spaceship at the end, we were all climbing into the spaceship that was going to the New Jerusalem out in the, uh, out in the stratosphere. And the winches pulled loose from the ceiling of the new Eurus Theater at 50th and Broadway. And there was this creaking and scraping in the entire staircase with 30 of us on it crashed through the trampoline crater into the bowels of the Eurus Theater, and people were screaming. Some were injured. My hand was, you know, hurt. 
Uh, I thought I was dead. And then this like white light poured into my eyes and it was a spotlight. They were doing a search onto the stage (laughs) and the crew came and pulled us out. Was that during a performance? It was during a preview. And, um, you know, the audience uh, got hit with stuff. The orchestra got hit with pieces of equipment. It was quite a scene and it was covered up until today. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And then we all walked out for like three days until they tested the equipment and canceled some of the special effects before we came back for our final two week run. We were sold out the last couple of weeks. I think people just wanted to see what the hell this was and how we survived it. (laughs) I think we got the worst reviews and the biggest box office uh, losses. I think it was like a million and a quarter bust as opposed to Dude, which was another very reckless musical that Tom O'Horgan had staged a few months before. It was a million dollar bust. We were a million and a quarter bust. So I don't know how proud I can be of that. Yeah, (laughs) But I went on. That's why television didn't look all that scary to me after what I had suffered in that first (laughs) ideal experience. Well, all I can say is I'm glad I'm glad that wasn't your closing night <laughs> or your first big break. <laughs> yes, thank you boys, thank you. <laughs> and then I started doing stand up and I got scouted for television and then I started coming out here to do pilots and things. And then I just started going on more television than theater. There was just so much more here than there and there was so much if you'll forgive the mercenary aspects of my motivations, money to be made. Uh, and regularity and, and dependability to be made here. And uh, I was interested in surviving. I wanted to be an actor, but I also wanted to be a career actor rather than having to take typing jobs and other things to survive. What would you say was your breakthrough here? Um, well, I was doing guest stars st- roles on things, but uh, Fridays was my first series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I was asked to do Saturday Night Live, but frankly, I wanted to be an actor and I wanted to be in some something longer than a sketch. That was my dream and goal. Good for you. That was a big decision for you to make. That was brave. I was burned, so burned out. I think Michael Richards and I both felt like we were damaged and we just could not go on for a while. We had to just hide and go to therapy and get ourselves (laughs) sort of cleared. (laughs) We are speaking with Melanie Chartoff. We'll be right back. Shoplifters, you're getting away with value. Listen to what Mrs. G86T91 of Honor Farm, Missouri says about value at shoplifters. I walked away with over $130 worth of hams in my pants, and it only cost me 50 bucks in 60 days. Shoplifters, you're getting away with more food. This week's special squirrel squares from Road Ready Flat Snacks, Velcro macaroni sticks to the outside of your ribs, and stupid Belgium waffle hats. Shoplifters, we give you a bigger head start. Remember, there's no long lines at our checkout counter because there are no checkout counters. We just follow you to your car and read you your rights. Shoplifters, a market that puts you away. Visit our seven convenient stores in King's Nose. You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. To hear all the Sexy Boomer Show episodes and get your hands on our Sexy Boomer bumper sticker, visit SexyBoomerShow.com. Look for Sexy Boomer Show on Twitter and Facebook. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast right now by clicking the subscribe button in your podcast player. Back to Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet and their special guest, lovely comedian, actress, author, and charismatizer, Melanie Charter. 
You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with Phil Proctor. I'm Ted Bonnet, and our guest today is Melanie Chardoff. Melanie, thanks so much for joining us. I'm having a blast. Now, listen, your class. Um, I teach charismatizing improvising, which I um, use for pros and non-pros alike to make them more stellar in their public presentations. So I'm doing that one-on-one on Skype. Um, people who are politicians, who are psychologists, religious uh, leaders, people who want to make themselves more compelling on camera, which is so essential now that we're on Skype and Zoom, uh, who want to work on their relationship to microphone and camera. Uh, so I work privately with people. People can reach to me at playdate444 at gmail.com. And they can go to my website, charismatizing.com, if they want to learn about this. And while they're stuck at home, do some work on their public presentations. Charismatizing. Yes, charismatizing, improvising. It's, um, it's an approach which isn't about being clever and pushing. It's about working emotionally and from your essential presence and truth. Uh, to connect at the visceral level with other performers so that a lot of the comedy isn't as verbal as it is emotional. Um, so it's good for actors. I have a lot of psychologists of, uh, of good name who study with me because they want to be the crazy one sometimes. And a lot of them <laughs> are very gifted. My husband's a shrink and he takes the class. And uh, oh, seeing therapists get out of their sit down and question role is so wonderful to see them being nuts and, and playful is really fun. Because they just have to sit and listen, be measured and offer advice, but they're absorbing all this angst all day long, now more than usual. And uh, you know, I just wonder, what do they do? Yes. do does primal screaming work? Well, I, I think Reikian and Primal Scream were a way of catharting, um, you know, and I sometimes have still gone out to my car. I was in Reikian therapy for a number of years, gone out to my car where I feel the ultimate sense of privacy and have a good bellow from time to time. Um, so I think it's a great tool. I don't think it's the end all for therapy. You still have to put yourself back together and understand why you're perhaps projecting or overreacting to certain stimuli during these unfortunate times. But the other thing I'm doing, boys, is I've written a book. It's called Odd Woman Out. It's about this particular woman who um, was kind of fragmented until she put herself together. So it takes place over, you know, the last half of the last century and the first 20 years of this century. And it's a very um, kind of uh, heartbreaking and hilarious story of my evolving from being more of a performer than a person um, into a hap- happily married wife and stepmother now. But um, mm. a lot of people you may know are in it, uh, all mentioned in a nice way. Um, I, I was felt up by Henny Youngman, though. I think I should let you know about <laughs> that uh, anecdote that is in there. May he rest in peace. Uh, <laughs> That's quite an image. I know, but this is before the Me Too movement. There were some interesting incidents with some people you might find fascinating back in the day. In the old days, his, his name was Harney Youngman, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it should have been. It should have been. So anyway, it's funny, it's hilarious, and it's very educational for people that want to know what it was like being in theater in the 70s and 80s in New York City and then being in television out here in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. Uh, They would learn a lot. And um, just understand what it's like to go from nobody, nothing, to celebrity and having money in a very short time. And what an odd phenomenon that is for all of us who have been through that. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, nobody knows. At one moment, nobody knows you. And then suddenly, everybody knows you. Mm-hmm. 
How did it work for you? Well, you know, I didn't mind it. I didn't feel any downside from it, really. I mean, I don't know about you, Philip, but it was pretty much it was fun. I was getting free shows and free tickets. I think it only got a little scary when people started following me home from the studio and some attorney got my home address from the DMV and started showing up with flowers and I had to threaten to get him disbarred. It got a little creepy in the 80s, I think. Yeah. And then I understood, you know, that I needed to move. I needed to change my phone number. I needed to protect myself. I used to stop at the 7-Eleven on Sunset Boulevard on my way home from the ABC studios uh, on Prospect in Las Feliz and ask the hookers if there was anybody on my tail. I go to 7-Eleven. They go, no. <laughs> You okay, girlfriend? You just go on home now. Nice tights you got on. You got some nice tights on there. You okay, girl? You just go on. And uh, so they watched and they they took care of me for a couple of years there. It was kind of sweet. I had uh, a slightly different experience. The thing with me was I felt so comfortable on stage. Uh, we used to do Gilbert and Sullivan productions when I was in grade school, and I was a boy soprano, so I played the female roles. You know, I was... Uh, Phyllis in the Pirates of Penzance, oh. for instance. And I felt totally at home and totally comfortable performing on stage. So uh, it was just from there on, it was like, well, I got to do this. But, but I, I wanted to be educated, so I took a little side trip into that. But when I had my success with the Firesign Theater, it was uh, voiceover. So nobody really knew right. what I looked like. Right. Right. So I could have a degree of anonymity. And yet if somebody said, are you Phil Proctor of the Firesign Theater? I would get a nice, you know, response from people. Yeah. It was only when I did uh, a thing in, uh, they did a feature on me on, on uh, about Sunday in New York in Look Magazine when I was doing a soap opera called Edge of Night. And I got onto a train commuting, I don't know, to New Haven or something. And everybody, well, almost everybody on the train was reading Look Magazine. <laughs> and after that, I would people would come up to me and say, do I know you? Wow. <laughs> that, that's, that's as bad as it got. Oh, that's wonderful. Didn't you just <laughs> love that? That was so much fun. It was fun. It yeah. is fun to be recognized. And it's especially when you, you've been doing something that you love and you feel good about it. Yeah. And it's wonderful when people when people are inspired or entertained or touched by what you do. That's wonderful. But when they want a piece of you just because you have notoriety, that's really creepy. That's the scary part. Yeah. Yeah, it gets really scary where they want, you know, your underwear, they want you to autograph some odd thing, and that, that's got real nasty attached to it. Well, luckily, nobody's ever wanted my underwear. You know, I'm so sorry. I'll ask for it after the show. <laughs> Thank you. I think that being on Rugrats, and I'm sure Philip would agree, for me was just a wonderful kind of fame because we touched so many people's lives. We were in people's homes. We babysat their kids. We have been a factor in so many uh, families' lives for so many years. And I know that uh, there are people that tell me that without Dee Dee Pickles' voice, which is not my voice, it's a voice I put on for the role, they wouldn't have gotten through grade school because their mothers worked. They were super women. They were never home. And they had a Spanish-speaking nanny so that Dee Dee Pickles' voice became the voice of their mother until she came home. Aww. So that's kind of stuff. It's just warmed my heart. You know, we had such wonderful characters that we played on that show. What were the other characters that you did? I played Dee Dee and Minka. Uh, Dee Dee was the mother of the, the drug rats. And Dee Dee was Dee Dee's mother, who was from Russia, the old country. 
And then uh, Philip played Howard. Howard DeVille. And, and then lots of villains and other, you know, character voices in the thing. But I, I just have to say, I totally agree with you. It has been so lovely. Yeah, that was a wonderful kind of fame. Yep. You told me that you were in Ireland in a post office and there was a picture of Howard like on the wall wanted dead or alive or something like that. They were selling <laughs> stickers, metallic uh, stickers about oh, eight inches long and uh, of, of a lot of the characters. And I bought, you know, like 10 of me. And then I thought, well, when I get to Dublin, I'll go into a toy store and I'll buy a whole bunch of these and, you know, give them to everybody when I get back to America. And no, it was just in this one little post office. <laughs> that was it. Wow. Wow. They will linger on, you know, in rerun. Ka-ching, thank you, uh, for many years and the specials that we did. Mm -hmm. We made the show so long that when they did a spinoff called All Grown Up, they put streaks of gray in our character's hair. Indeed, he was in menopause, so she had a pot belly <laughs> and her, her pointed red hair was now drooping a little bit. <laughs> she had a big belly and they had me do my voice deeper. So instead of like this, it was more like this. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so that, that was really fun. And, um, you know, I'll be glad about that forever. And let, let on to the next generation. I hope they make something really wonderful out of it. Getting back to your charismatizing, <laughs> yeah. do you find need for social smoothing, if you will, uh, in, in the digital age? For example, when people text, often because there's no organic connection, there's no facial tics. Very often, messages are misconstrued, and people are thinking they've received a hostile message when, in fact, it wasn't intended to be that at all. I guess that's what the emojis are for and those little, mm -hmm. you know, acronyms like LOL. I guess that's supposed to soften it. But, yeah, I would think it had a tone problem. So it's mostly informational rather than emotional. Uh, certainly leaves a lot to be desired. And um, I was working with a lot of young people who didn't know how to interface, only how to interscreen. <laughs> People were sending me their kids just to get them how to respond in, to get them to respond in the moment to another person talking to them. Um, but, you know, there is a kind of a, a geekiness. You know, I, I think geeks are people that are more aroused by machinery than by human contact. And um, I've had a lot of those when I was teaching in Silicon Valley. I had a lot of famous, rich, super geeks studying with me, just learning how to deal face-to-face, torso-to-torso without holding a machine in front of them. I was wondering that if this generation that is wired differently because of the individual screens and, and the interconnectedness electronically and the isolation that can create, mm. do you think that we're going to be more isolationist uh, by the end of this? You know, I don't think it's going to be that way for young people. I think they're going to start to crave interfacing. I think they'll, they'll move to Zoom and FaceTime and get off the texting a bit. I, I'm finding kids are face-to-facing. Are, are -face I don't have any little kids in my life. But I'm finding there's more of a craving for group video meets. I certainly don't think texting is going to be adequate for, for kids anymore. My God, to be a teenager right now, not be able to hang out with your friends. The kids need to read that new book that's out now called The Primal Screen. <laughs> really? No. <laughs> <laughs> that could be your next book. I want to ask you, can people pre-order The Odd Woman Out book? Not yet, but uh, it'll be on my website, uh, charismatizing.com or melaniechartoff.com when it is. I'm going to be excerpting pieces of it on there. Mm -hmm. 
for young people, um, I have written a poem about the corona. I, I don't know if you have time anymore. Oh, please. You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with Phil Proctor. I'm Ted Bonnet. And our guest today is Melanie Chardoff with Poetry. This is just a kind of a cautionary tale for young people. We raised your folks to protect their hearts, to ask lots of questions before a love starts. We tried to keep them the marrying kind, told them, look close before love drives you blind. Then condoms, diaphragms, birth control pills made our kids think they could beat all our ills. We warned them to be careful about holding hands. Now you girls say hello and you stick out your glands. (laughs) And today the stakes are higher still. You guys get too close and one cough could kill. So before you get took by some date's great look, take some smarts from your wise old great-grandma's book. Is this person worth the germs? Is this person worth the germs? What's the risk in getting kissed? Is this person worth the germs? Mr. Charm saw no harm in kissing up Carmen, who he met at the beach yesterday. Now here's what he'll do. Go to bed with a flu and waste his whole summer away. Is this person worth the germs? Is this person worth the germs? Is Mona worth Corona? Is this person worth the germs? Forget STDs. It's the viruses, please, that lie beneath all of the radar. Bob may like her now, but from his feverish brow, he'll find lots of reasons to hate her. Unless she is a nurse, things could go from bad to hearse. So he should have called a doctor before he went and fucked her. (laughs) (laughs) Beth, salmon's full of mercury and chicken salmonella. Eating cow can drive you mad. So before you kiss some fella, think of the germs. Sure, condoms stop a lot of ills and pills the morning after. But one reckless small infection can end your whole life chapter. Today, the wisest tactics of full body prophylactics. Just stay lovesick or get toxic from your forehead to your coccyx. If your gonads have been nomads and you've survived this long, just abstain and sing this refrain from your old great grandma's song. Is this person worth the germs? Is this person worth the germs? Is Cyrus worth a virus? Is this person worth the germs? Is this person worth the germs? Is this person worth the germs? Is Rufus worth the mucus? (laughs) I'm sorry, it gets worse and worse. Is Shep worth the strep? Is Lydia worth chlamydia? Is Sherman worth the vermin? It goes on and on, but you get the gist. It, it was actually written. Oh, that's wonderful. When I saw those kids on the beach in Florida, I thought, oh, my God, what are they doing? I understand the hunger to, to cavort. But, um, you know, it seemed like it was a very risky move. Oh, man. It was in, in the 80s when sex equaled death. Now hello, proximity equals death. Yeah. I know. Hugs equal death. Is there a particular story in the book that sort of sums it up as to what you experienced? Well, in the um, in the uh, 80s, I uh, was driven so mad by the um, contrast between having no intimate, having no intimate friends or family here and being uh, impersonally adored by everybody else on the street that it kind of made me a little nuts. And I, I actually was uh, told to go visit Muktananda and this ashram, which was an old nightclub in the Catskills, which had been converted to a, a temple. And uh, it talks about my adventures there, trying to get back in, trust, in touch with trusting people, trusting strangers, trusting myself, uh, understanding why the people I loved who loved me most seemed to be most resentful and uncomfortable with me. My, my mother actually glazed over talking to me. She seemed intimidated. It was just a really alienating phenomenon. So I have a story there and it's called My Obscured Third Eye. 
Boy, looking forward to that very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. This was absolutely delightful, Melanie. Every time that we spend time together, I learn more about you and your fascinating life and career. I'm so happy for you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Philip. Always great to spend time with you in any medium. Melanie, it was really a pleasure to meet you finally. Thank you, Ted. Thank you so much for joining us in the bunker. A pleasure. Stay healthy. Take good care. See you on the other side. Love you very much. Bye. Bye, Philip. Gee, I hope by the other side she just meant after the crisis is over. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. I think so. (laughs) It's just so nice to hear people with their spirits up. I've always loved her, but my God, she's really shining. She's just doing great. We will be back soon. Gesundheit. It's been a pleasure as always. Thanks, Phil. Uh, Thank you, Ted. And remember, cough into your elbow. (coughs) Like that. You've been listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, featuring Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet and special guest Melanie Chartoff. Shoplifter's Market was written and performed by the Firesign Theater. Music by Eddie Betos and the Nervous Brothers. I'm a Ernest Guy. Join us for the next episode of Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, produced by RadioPictures.com, the makers of fine podcasts for boomers. Okay? Okay.